Today's reading is taken from Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served cre created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also a proof of those who practice them. This is the word of God. Thank you. If you can keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 1. It's a difficult text, and I'm sure you'll want to go through it um, with me. So have your Bibles ready, and let me ask that the God will speak to us um, through this text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, that these difficult words, even they are for us, written uh, for us. And Lord, we pray that you would, your Holy Spirit will help us to understand them and apply them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a world, the parliament of religion, 
um, in a lecture there, a Hindu scholar called Swami Vivekananda said, Hindus refuse to call you sinners. He said, you are children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect being. It is sin to call a man a sinner. It's a standing libel on human nature, he said. And Vivekananda's statement, I think, is emblematic of today's culture. Today's culture that wants to affirm you, whatever you are. It wants to affirm you and say that you are good, wherever you are. L'Oreal Cosmetic Commercial says, because you're worth it. Another one says, uh, unleash the goddess in you. People say that you need to be authentic to yourself and to be true to yourself, assuming that who you are in yourself is actually good. That there is goodness. Um, there, that, that, that if there is problems, it's sort of superficial. But if you dig in, in you, who you are is really good. Well, Christianity says otherwise. Yes, it recognizes the dignity and goodness of every human being. I mean, the world gets that idea from Christianity. We are created in God's image, Genesis 1 and 2. But the story of Genesis goes on to tell the story of Genesis chapter 3 as well. Our rebellion, our sin, our selfishness, our shame that has destroyed our lives and the world subsequently. Christianity says that we as we are, truly, are not what we should be, that we need a rescue. And Paul shows us in today's passage why we need this rescue. He tells us that we deserve God's wrath. Everyone, because although the God has revealed himself to us, his nature and his divine power that we should worship him, we have this knowledge, but we suppress it. And not only do we suppress it, We've manufactured all these lesser idols, the idols that we should not worship, and we worship them instead. And so Paul tells us that God has given us over to our worst desires, our worst instincts, and our worst idols, that God's wrath is revealed that way, that we might come and cry out for help. But as we start, I don't want us to make any mistake here because God's wrath and God's anger is different from our anger. You know, when we get angry, often it comes from sinfulness, you know, hurt pride or arrogance or uh, desire for revenge or envy or something like that. But God does not get angry for those reasons. When God gets angry, he gets it. He gets angry for good reasons. It comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of justice. For example, uh, when Mary sees my children go, uh, go um, to the street without looking uh, left and right, and there's a big truck coming, Mary gets angry. And that comes from a place of love because she cares for Barney and she cares for Corey. And she does not want uh, them to get hit by the car. And she goes, no, that's not how you're supposed to walk. Now, even that is slightly uh, not the uh, perfect example. It does come from a place of love, but often mothers and often we get overboard. We get irrational. Um, we get uh, out of proportion, don't we, in our anger. And God's anger never does that. It's perfectly proportional uh, it, to, to what we've done. And it is God's settled opposition against evil. God cannot see evil 
and just let it go. God has to punish it because he's against it. And his anger is always just, perfectly just. So Paul says uh, that God's wrath is being revealed. To whom? To us who are wicked, verse 18. He says that we should know better. Because verse 19 and 20 says, God has revealed himself, his divine nature and his power clearly to the world. In fact, Cambridge theologian Mona Hooker says that this section of Romans is a retelling of the Genesis story of 1 to 3. There's Genesis language all over it. So, for example, there's that obvious reference to the creation of the world in verse 20 that were created, that, 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 that um, the talks of being in God's likeness in the image of God, verse 23, reference to human beings and the knowledge of God and their resolve to be wise, you know, in, 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 to, to eat the fruit and become wise, verse 22, and exchanging God's truth for Satan's lies, verse 25 and that understanding that our rebellion deserves death. What Paul is saying is that taking these images, what Paul is saying that what happened to Adam and Eve is not just something that happened to Adam and Eve. It's the story of all of us. We all do this. We all fall in the same way. God has revealed himself and what is good, what we ought to do, but then we do not do it. We rebel against him. We exchange God's truth for a lie. And we start worshiping idols and we then fall into sin, into ruins of this world. Back 2000, uh, but what do we know about God? And he says, uh, God's power and divine nature, that God exists, that God is powerful, that should be known to everyone. Well, back 2,000 years ago when it was written, this was written, this letter is written, this was taken for granted. There are very few real atheists back then, right? Everybody worshipped something, some idols, because they thought that there was something greater. But we live in the age of evolution, astrophysics, string theory, or whatever, and we think that we know better. But I think Paul would say exactly the same thing, that God's divine power and his nature is being revealed. How do we know? For example... People should know that something does not come from nothing. Next slide, please. People should know that something does not come from nothing. How, um, yeah, next slide, please. Yeah, uh, the, the universe, well, how did it come to being? We know that something does not come from nothing. How did the universe begin? Why is there something than nothing? Or how does organic life happen? You know, from chemistry, this uh, things um, floating around, how, how does it become life? What are the chances of inorganic material creating biology, material beings that are living? And not just living, but think about our mind, our consciousness. People still can't explain our consciousness, can they? Our brain is sophisticated. It's not just neurons firing in our brain. It becomes thought. It becomes logic. It becomes mathematics. It becomes things that are beyond uh, people's understanding. How about morality? Our sense of right and wrong, it's there in all of us. We all agree that there is this absolute sense of right and wrong, that there are some things that we cannot deny. Life 
isn't left to chances. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power are being revealed still in this world. It's clearly seen. But Paul says we don't worship God. We don't seek him because people who should know this, know this internally somehow suppress it down. They suppress the truth. Sir Fred Hoyle calculated the chances of life appearing on its own as 1 over 10 to the 40,000, which is just not possible, right? He's just saying that this is just not possible. In fact, he goes on to describe in his writing, he writes that organic life happening by accident is as ridiculous, he says, and improbable as the proposition that a tornado blowing through a junkyard would assemble Boeing 747. Tornado going through the junkyard, assembling Boeing 747. He's saying it's not possible. But he is an atheist. He does not believe in God. Well, how does he then explain life? Well, instead of saying God created life, he says, actually, maybe there's just life all around the universe. He thinks that a comet might have brought life to Earth. And you think, where did that life come from? Why does life exist in the universe? You know, he thinks that uh, he, he, although he coined the term Big Bang, he's an astrophysicist, he coined the term Big Bang, he did not believe in the Big Bang because he thought that was too close to believing in a God, to in believing that some God created the universe. So he posited that universe sort of exists in its density eternally and sort of expands eternally in this way. You see, here's a very smart man who knows the improbability of life, who knows that things are just, we are extraordinarily lucky, right? But is not willing to attribute that, that, that life, existence of life and the universe to God, but he attributes it to luck. He attributes it to things that are not rational, People suppress the truth of God. If you've ever tried to share the gospel with um, those who don't know Jesus yet, you'll find that these people, uh, they're not neutral ground. You know, we often assume that if we just argue this way, if we remove this emotional baggage or this intellectual obstacle, then they will surely see the, the, the goodness of God and the existence of God and come to faith. But that is not the case. Because what we are doing is we're going against people's rebellious nature, people's um, uh, desire to suppress the truth and worship themselves or other things and not submit to God's rule. No, our rebelliousness goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's the story of humanity. The tragedy is, though, when we stopped worshiping God, we then worship something else, lesser things that ruin us. We manufacture idols in our hearts and worship it instead. John Calvin said that our hearts are basically idol factories. You remove one, another idol takes its place, and we worship the things that we make. We make in our own image uh, or the things of this world. Verses 22 to 23. Although they claim to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for the images, for idols. 
We might worship other people. We might worship um, grandparents, grandparents, uh, uh, our ancestors, tree, sun, or whatever, you name it. We've, uh, humanity has worshipped everything. Well, many people in Hong Kong say, well, we're not, we're beyond that. We're more sophisticated than that. But are we? I mean, Christians also, we say, well, we love Jesus. This isn't really for us, but are we? Christians aren't immune to idol worship. Pastor Paul Tripp tells the story of going to India, entering a Hindu temple in northern India, and watch people pay homage to 15-foot black stone phallus. I'm sorry, black stone penis. People bowing down to it, worshiping it. And he writes, I thought to myself, how blind and deceived these people must be, how utterly disgusting this must be in the eyes of the true and living God. I literally ran out of the temple, overcome with darkness, saying to myself, I am glad that I am not like these people. But as I looked back at the temple, I was humbled by the thought that I am like them. My idols are not the overt idols of Hindu polytheism. They are the covert idols of my heart covert idols of my heart. For most of us, it's not that we don't worship shameful things. We do. We just hide them better, much better. And while our love for Jesus might be genuine, and it is in there, we often think that he is not enough. So in the depth of our hearts, we're practical polytheists. There's Jesus and something else that we worship. Now, how would you finish this sentence? In order for me to be truly joyful and happy, I need Jesus and. What's that and? You know, what are you thinking about when you have time, when your mind daydreams? Where does it go? Some people, it goes to romance. Many people daydream about romance. If you're single or something, you think, ah, if I just have this person, if this person loves me, then I'll be satisfied. Actually, this happens in marriage too. You think, ah, if my wife was a little bit more like this, I'd be really happy. Jesus and work is another culture uh, 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 that takes over. We work hard. Um, if I can get that project, if I can get that promotion. And we sacrifice so much on the altar of work, our family life, our health, so much. We might not bow down to statue of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, but we worship people who went to Harvard. <laughs> we look up to them. We want to be like them. We will ask how they did it, how their, child, uh, how their children are so smart, or whatever it is. We act as if our children's future entirely depends on where they go to school. Doesn't God determine our future? Doesn't God control our future? Isn't he the one that we worship? We worship money, we worship honor, we worship fame, power. They're cultural idols too. We think, oh, if Hong Kong was a little bit more democratic, or if Hong Kong was a little bit more patriotic, or whatever it is, we think, oh, if it were like this, the world would be so much better. I would be so much more satisfied. What is that Jesus and? Paul describes what happens to when we worship idols. We don't become more free. We don't become more hum human being. We become de uh, dehumanized. We become 
idolatry has a way of making us more like beasts, creatures of desires. And it's not just the Bible that tells us that idol worship is bad. Wise people have always said so. The novelist David Foster Wallace, who passed away, who committed suicide, but he, before, as he was writing this and he was at the height of his fame, he famously spoke at Oberlin College uh, in the commencement uh, address. There's a picture of him coming out. But in that address, he said this, if you worship money and things, if they are where, you're, where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll feel, uh, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship money, you will never have enough money. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over other people to numb your own fears. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always in the verge of being found out while claiming to be wise, you'll become fools. So the worship, the world worships idols while claiming to be wise have become fools and wicked. And did you know what God does in this passage? It's a terrifying passage. It's a terrifying phrase that's repeated three times in the next section. God gave them over. God gave them over. To sinful desires in verse, verse 24, shameful lusts, verse 26, depraved minds, verse 28. It's Oscar Wilde who once said that when God wants to punish us, he grants our prayers. To people who, wor- who will worship everything else but God, God lets them be. God lets them have it. They, God gives them over to the, uh, the, our own idolatry of our hearts and their consequences. Verse 24, God gives you the sinful desires of your hearts. I've told this story of my wanting to be married in my 20s, early 30s, uh, pursuing this relationship, ignoring God's warnings, dating my ex-fiance, and God gave me over to my desires, and the result of, result was, of it was four and a half years of turbulent relationship with a heartbreak that wasn't good one, good for anyone. Our own desires, you see, are sometimes our worst enemies. And God, in his wrath, gives us over to our own desires. God gave them over to shameful lusts, verse 26. Paul here uses the example of homosexuality, men and women here. They exchange their natural relationship with the unnatural one. And Paul here, when he says natural and not natural, Unnatural. He's not talking about how one feels. You might feel like you're naturally attracted to the people of the same sex. That's not what he's talking about. When he says natural or unnatural, as we've seen, he's going back to Genesis, to God's created design. That God defines what is natural and unnatural. But why then does Paul single out homosexuality here? Not because this sin is somehow more evil than other sins, but because in Paul's mind, homosexuality is just obviously against God's design. God made people in this image to be in this sort of relationship, and people are going against it. 
God then gives them over to their unnatural desires. It's an example or illustration of how our sin takes over and makes us do things that are against God's design. But before you feel any smugness or self-righteousness, oh, I'm glad that I'm not like this, take a look at the list that comes in verses 28 and on. 28 and on. God gives them over to depraved minds. In verse 29 and on has this list. And these are all evil desires that are not natural to us. It shouldn't be natural to us. Greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hating, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, inventiveness of doing evil, disobeying parents, ignorance, betrayal, no love of money or mercy. We're given over to these desires, these sinfulness, aren't we? When it says given over, it also means enslaved. We don't have control over it. We're given over to them. They control us. You might still be thinking, well, I'm not like this. But once again, let's go back to some of our idols, workaholism. Why are we so addicted to our work? Could it be partly pride, boastfulness, that I want this title, I want this amount of money, I want to be somebody in this world so I can say to other people, isn't there arrogance there? Or, or idolizing children's education. I mean, this past week we saw the scandal, the ESF school um, scandal, the admission scandal. I was just blown away. I mean, kindergarten, this wasn't like secondary school, kindergarten they bribed so they can get their kids into this school. For kindergarten, well, how much of that stemmed from envy? I want to be like these other parents. How much of that stemmed from, once again, pride, to being wanted, wanting to be thought of as good parents, as better parents than others? If we dig it deep enough, most of us, you'll see how these sinful desires not, are not just present, but they control us. They enslave us. And if we haven't gotten low enough, it gets worse in the final verse, in verse 32. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Roman Colosseum was completed in the year 80, um, AD, AD, AT AD. If you've ever been to Rome, it's an impressive structure. You go and you'll be awed by the ingenuity and the architecture and all of that, and it's survived 2,000 years. It's an amazing building, but it was a despicable building, was it not? This is, was where Christians were fed to lions, beheaded and stabbed. This is where gladiators fought to kill each other. And on any given day, 50 to 80,000 people cheering them on, cheering for their favorite gladiator to kill another human being made in God's image. You know, if you think about it, people who are watching and cheering them on is worse than the people who are fighting aren't they? Because gladiators often did not have a choice to fight. But people who went to cheer them on as entertainment, well, they had a choice. What sins are we watching, are we cheering on in the way that we live? 
How much do we cheer on lust? Maybe on TV or whatever. Pride, greed, gossip. How much do we partake in these sins? We cheer them on who share these things. Totalizing of these ideology and philosophy. God has given the world over to them. And we see its consequences. Friends, if you are not yet a Christian with us today, I hope you see some of yourself in this picture, claiming to be wise but becoming fools. Christians, I hope you surely see yourself in this picture. I sure do. And I hope in some ways that it's freeing to hear this bad news because if we are like what Vivekananda said, if we are this holy, perfect, sacred beings that should know better, right, that, 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 should, um, uh, that are not sinners, then it's just on us um, to make the world better. It's just on us. We ought to just be trying harder. It cannot make sense of this struggle that I have inside, that I can't be freed on my own. No matter how we try in the world, the world will not be as it is on its own. They cannot make sense out of that. But of course, Christians can. I cannot do it on my own because I am by nature objects of God's wrath, suppressing the truth, inventing and worshiping idols, enslaved to the worst desires of our hearts. But thank God for Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Praise God for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us alone in our sin, in our addiction, in our enslavement, that as we, as people cried out, Lord, you've, um, you've sent your Jesus, uh, you sent your son Jesus to rescue us. We thank you that we have a Savior who brings us out of ourselves, who gives us a new heart. We thank you that we have a Savior who will renew the whole world. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.